Hello and welcome along once again to It'll Be Alright in the 90s, the nostalgia podcast which, having enjoyed its best years, is now off to America to wind down its career with one final payday. I'm Stu Joslin and joining me as always is Alex Greenwood. Greeny, hello mate, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Uh, that would be fantastic if we were off to the States. I think that is where all, all great podcasters go in their twilight years, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And we'll be no different. You know, once we've served our time uh, here in the UK, we'll, we'll, we'll go over there to uh, to take the money and uh, see out our final couple of years podcasting in the States. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. Before we go out to, to pod pasture, as it were. <laughs> Wait for one of those big uh, podcast franchises to pick us up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we have a sponsor this evening who might actually be able to help us out with decorating our new houses once we get over to the States to see how our, our podcast Twilight is, because our sponsor this evening is FADS. And you can just quote the code ALRIGHT90s at the checkout to receive 10% off a five litre can of Tetratex sand-coloured exterior wall paint. That's FADS, the paint and paper people. And very many thanks to those guys for helping us out tonight. Excellent, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if I've ever been to FADS. Fads had a store on Hathaway Retail Park in Chippenham. Very happy memories of that store because they had a section where there was just some Lego set up on a table uh, where if you were a young child, you could just go and and, uh, and do some building while your parents looked at curtains and paint and things like that. Really, really good. Yeah, something you definitely don't see these days, do you? Like a, a section where you can just go and put the kids uh, and let them get on with it. I mean, mm -hmm. the one I can think of is is the Early Learning Centre, but I guess that was kind of different because they were trying to make you buy the the Brio train set at the end of it. But yeah, the, the excitement of just going to a shop that had a a, a dedicated play area was um, it was brilliant marketing, really. But I guess in today's uh, health and safety world or, or whatever it is, we just don't get that anymore. And uh, yes, it's a sad demise of the the kids' play area in department stores. Well, it's yet another aspect of 90s life that we're worse off for losing, isn't it? Don't don't start another campaign. <laughs> I can see that you're tempted to start another campaign. I've got my finger on the button here. No, no, no. OK, OK, I'll ease off. We've got too many campaigns running concurrently at the moment. There's, the staff are at breaking point. Later on tonight, we're going to be talking to Legend of the Pod Kate Pro about David and Victoria Beckham, possibly the most 90s celebrity couple, would you say? Oh, I think so. In the UK, certainly. yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about their impact in the world of sport, music and fashion in the 90s. So obviously plenty to cover there. There's no mailbag this week, but I do have a few parish notices, Alex, if you'll indulge me for a few minutes while I do that. Oh, please do. Yeah. We've now sent out all of the prizes to our uh, summer pod party lucky winners. So look out for those. Hopefully by the time this episode reaches you, you will have received your gifts. So uh, do let us know. Uh, how you get on with those. We hope you like them. I've got a correction from last time's episode as well. Ich habe ein Pony, ich habe zwei Pudel, ich habe drei Hunde, ich habe vier Hamster, ich habe fünf Fische, ich habe sechs Vögel, ich habe sieben Katzen, ich habe acht Kaninchen, ich habe neun Mäuse, ich habe zehn Meerschweinchen, ich habe elf Schildkutten, ich habe zwölf Schlangen. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You don't get that sort of content on Joe Rogan, do you? <laughs> you just don't. So that was the Ich habe ein Pony song from a couple of weeks ago. I had to sing it in its entirety in order to make a couple of corrections. I said it was uh, Acht Kaninchen, uh, which is correct, but I said it was Budgerigars, and actually Kaninchen is, is Rabbit. Um, so I apologise for making that uh, error there. And the ones that I missed out were uh, Elf Schildkröten, which is 11 tortoises, and Zvolschlangen, which is 12 snakes. So um, apologies to uh, the listener and apologies also to my year seven German teacher, Mrs. Wheels, um, for any inconvenience and distress that my errors last time out may have caused. And apologies to Germany, of course. What, did you <laughs> say number two was poodles and number three was dogs? Yes, that's right. That, that always troubled me. That's a crossover um, there, isn't it? Come on. Also, if you're living in a house with 10 guinea pigs and 12 snakes, you're going to have problems anyway, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolute madhouse. <laughs> Um, the final thing I wanted to say is just a get well message to legend of the pod, uh, Lee Burnsy Burns. Um, he's now obviously concluded his football career and he's gone in for some surgery that he was waiting for. He's going to be in plaster for some time. So I just wanted to send everybody, it will be all right in the 90s, best wishes to Burnsy for his speedy recovery. 
Yeah, get well soon, Burnsy. Can I also make a quick correction from last time? Well, I don't even know if it is a correction. It might be a correction. I'm just hedging my bets here. We were talking about a Snickers advert that appeared in the the build-up to How To. And I did Mm -hmm. put a clip of it in our YouTube version of the pod. So go and check that out if you haven't already seen it. I said it was Matthew McFadden was the goalkeeper, like world's famous actor Matthew McFadden. I'm now not completely sure. The more I watch it, the more (laughs) I'm thinking, have I mixed him up with another similar looking actor? But please do go and look at it. Let me know because I can't prove it anyway. I can't find it in the comments under the video. It's obviously not in Matthew McFadden's IMDb breakdown. So have a look and let me know if you think that is Matthew McFadden from uh, Succession. Please do. We can't make an apology until we're absolutely sure of what the correct answer is. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I know you'll be losing sleep over that. So oh, if yeah. anybody has any information, please do let us know. Yeah. The last two weeks have been uh, hell. Stu, I've just got a little thing here for you, uh, which relates to the official Formula One driver of the pod, Taki Inui, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. I stumbled across this clip over the course of my daily ramblings around YouTube and uh, I just thought this was quite amusing. I, I cut a, a clip out of it and I thought I'd send it to you for the pod. So uh, if you can listen to that now and, and tell me what you think. Certainly. After four mediocre years in Japanese Formula 3, during which time he scored only 11 points in 34 races, Inoue moved to Europe in 1994 to race in International Formula 3000 and settled in East Anglia in the UK after being told at the airport that the nearest racing course was in Newmarket, which turned out to be for horse racing. Oh, that's fantastic. That's classic tacky. Amazing. And also to hear that he settled in East Anglia, which is obviously a a region of the UK, which is very close to your heart, uh, just, just strengthens his ties to this podcast even more. Thank you for that, tacky. Yeah, you you are hereby underlined in the ledger for official F1 (laughs) driver of the pod. 11 points in 34 races in Formula 3000, though, made it to F1. I know. It it was a different time, that's for sure. A time before Google on your phone, clearly. To to move to a country and then just ask at the airport where the nearest racetrack is, is uh, is brave, to say the least, isn't it? (laughs) Time now for What's the Most 90s. And I have one for you here, Stu. Something I've been planning on asking you for a few weeks now, but it's finally come down to it. I'm asking you what the most 90s games console is. I have gone for a console that I never owned, but I always wanted. I think the most 90s games console is the Sega Game Gear. Uh, So this was a landscape console, and it was fully backlit. So Sega marketed this as being superior to the Game Boy for those exact reasons. So the Game Boy obviously was smaller. You had to tilt it towards a window or a source of light to be able to use it properly. That was what Sega's marketing scheme was, to, to market the Game Gear as superior technologically to the Game Boy. But it had drawbacks against the Game Boy as well. So it had a very, very short battery life and it also had a smaller library of games. Uh, we all know how many games uh, became available for the Game Boy in the end. Game Gear only had a very, very small library of games. Uh, and it was produced between 1991 and 1997, so a pure thoroughbred 90s console as well, with production ending in 97. One of the things I was always intrigued by was the fact that you could get a TV tuner add-on for the Game Gear so that you could, in effect, use it as a portable TV or pick up terrestrial TV channels uh, with a really long extendable aerial, which is something that I really like as well. The Game Gear did suffer because Sega were concentrating on the Mega Drive mainly as as their main console, and then the Saturn, which obviously came in uh, as a competitor to the PlayStation. And so the Game Gear was gradually forgotten about, and the last one rolled off the production line. Do consoles roll off production lines? Probably, yeah. You'd have thought they'd just all break. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, Mm. maybe there's a mattress down or something. (laughs) Well, anyway, they stopped producing them in 1997. Yeah, I, just, I always fancy the Game Gear. Never got around to getting one. I don't think it's a 90s folly that I am going to chase up uh, in, in these modern times. I've done most of them, but I don't think a Game Gear is going to be one of them. I think that might be a step too far. So the Game Gear might have to stay as a, an unknown quantity for me. But yeah, no, I've gone, for, I've gone for the Game Gear for this one. I think that's a good choice, yeah. I, I remember playing one. I think maybe the only time I ever played one was around my brother's friend's house possibly brett jr if you're listening brett you can confirm or deny that and it was also the first time i'd ever played sonic any of the sonic games because we weren't a sega family it did seem really exciting and and so much better than the the game boy it was seemed like a real 
development there, real like technological advancement, but it was never something that we owned and I've never been big into handheld gaming, which explains maybe my my decision for what the most 90s games console was because it's not handheld. But I did find it difficult to choose one because I think the 90s was kind of the decade where, well, it was the decade where console gaming exploded, wasn't it? I know we had the Master System and some other early forms of this, the console had been developed in the 80s, but the 90s was when it really like smashed through into the mainstream. I toyed with the idea of the Saturn, maybe the Amiga CD32, just to give Amiga another shout out. <laughs> but I'm going to have to go. And it feels boring. It sounds boring, but I'm going to have to go for the PlayStation 1. I just think it represents the explosion of console gaming better than any other console. I think it tied in with the 90s cultural zeitgeist. I think sort of tied in with um, dance music, like with Wipeout and Ridge Racer. There was sort of a connection there with dance music. I think Wipeout had music done by the Chemical Brothers, maybe, famously. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, so famously that I don't actually remember, but I'm (laughs) sure there was a connection there. And then also people like Lara Croft, who I think was one of the faces of the 90s, and I just think it made it was also connected to to lad and ladette culture and drinking culture in a way that Mega Drive and Master System and the other consoles weren't. And obviously, lad and ladette culture was typified the nineties. So I think it's that sort of connection, and just it felt like it was part of the whole cultural landscape of the nineties. I feel like I've got to go for the PlayStation. I think that's absolutely fair enough. I th- there was always going to be a big hitter that came in, I think, to to go head-to-head with the Game Gear in our What's the Most 90s Games console debate. And uh, I think I always knew that the big hitter would win, whichever one you chose. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's going to have to be the PlayStation. Isn't it? it just did so much and revolutionised so much in the world of home gaming. I think it has to be, really. Well, hang on there, Stu, because who's just knocking on the door? We've got a third person to come and give some input on this because it's our old friend dan from the odd pod has come along and he's got his own theory on what the most 90s console was so uh dan what do you think i thought it was going to be tacky and newy looking for new market okay the most 90s games console the first thing that came to mind was the ps1 it was massive it had some amazing games and a lot of people when they do think of 90s gaming do think of the ps1 it's a huge one but I'm actually going to go with the Sega Dreamcast. <laughs> um, and it's because, I'll, I'll try and justify it. I'm going to go with the Dreamcast because, one, it was like this very nice... Because internet in the 90s was a very big thing that people were thinking about the future of it and stuff like that. And Dreamcast was thinking about the future of it as well, like including the modem inside it. So it was the first foray into online gaming that you know 90s kids were sort of slowly getting into and the vmu unit and the controller was like a little tamagotchi so it was like reminiscent of that kind of thing and uh, so it's like yeah so it's very 90s again um the games you got like sonic the hedgehog sonic adventure which was the most 90s thing ever sonic you near know, the little hedgehog of attitude so you know they had sonic as well and just all the other games they had were very 90s attitude kind of games and you got stuff like um crazy taxi with offspring very 90s band i don't know when i think of the dreamcast i do think very much the 90s just infused into it all the little 90s things the 90s tech like i said with early internet stuff and the little vmu unit like a little tamagotchi which was massive in the 90s uh, i don't know if I'm, I'm turning anyone's opinion around from like going for the ps1 or stuff like that but yeah, like I said, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about the Dreamcast, and there's probably there were a few other things that were in my mind about it. But I just can't, I can't remember what they were. But like I said, the games are very nineties. Just the look of it, very nineties. It's just like I said, I think it is the most nineties console, the Sega Dreamcast. And like I said, Sega were huge in the nineties. They sort of, you know, the Dreamcast was their last thing. But uh, yeah. I'm going to go with the Dreamcast. I don't know if this answer was too long. But, um, but then most 90s console, I'm going with the Sega Dreamcast. And I'm kind of curious if anyone else uh, agrees with what I just said. So there you go. Thank you very much. So what do you think of that then, Stu? The Dreamcast? Head to head with the PlayStation and the Game Gear? Well, the Dreamcast is another one that I've, I've never played. I don't think I've ever even seen a Dreamcast. Um, I have to say, one that completely got away from me. 
I remember it most for being on the front of Arsenal shirts at that time, I think, really. Um, yeah. So I can neither really go go here nor there on the Dreamcast, I'm afraid to say, Dan. I'm sorry about that. Uh, have you got any first-hand experience? No, not at all. Like I said, I wasn't a Sega guy and I wasn't part of a Sega family. But I do recognise that it was kind of Sega's death throes, wasn't it? It was their last console. In that way, it deserves respect for, for a, a legend of, of computer gaming. So it's it's definitely a good shout. I was I mean I was thinking about the Sega Saturn as well. So I don't know. I think it's close. I don't know. Well, how about we say uh, the PlayStation has to go in the ledger, but we could give an honourable mention that covers all of Sega's output throughout the decade. Yeah. Okay. I like that. And bonus points, like you say, for the football shirt sponsorship, which actually mm-hmm. also applied to Amiga, but not a console. So there you go. In the ledger, the PlayStation One with uh, with some caveats. Well, let's not close the ledger just yet, oh, hang on. because I might have some other what's the most 90s business to cover. This has come in from friend of the pod, Stephen Robs, who is a keen caver. Uh, he's often to be found in and around the tunnels of Wiltshire, looking in the various nooks and crannies. And he has sent in some lovely photos that he's taken of a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers mixed fruit juice drink carton that he found in one of the caves. I'll just show it to you there. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, there's a great. there's a best before date there of March 1997 <laughs> on that carton. And he thought that would be of interest to us. And he was correct. So thank you very much for that, Steve. Along with the receipts call out that we did a couple of weeks ago after our correspondence from Tom Page, if anybody's got any 90s litter or other packaging hanging around um, that they might be able to, to send us in, please do get in touch and let us know because we would love to see that. We're very much interested in that. Although, of course, littering is bad and you shouldn't do it. And the podcast does not condone it. Unless you did it in the 90s, in which case, thanks for the content. Have we got time for some story roulette content, Alex? Talking of content, have we got time for that? I think we can squeeze some in before Kate Pro arrives. Excellent. So still on the table, we have the biggest telling off I ever received at primary school. Angus Deaton's one foot in the groin. Uh, me nearly getting killed on a zebra crossing or and this has come in hot onto the uh, roulette table this morning running into a plate glass window at a branch of argos i want the zebra crossing near death one please you want the zebra crossing near death one okay so this took place at a zebra crossing which i think will be familiar to you this is the zebra crossing outside caution library i knew you were going to say that as zebra crossing (laughs) whenever someone says you know zebra crossing which no one ever says, but if I think of Zebra Crossing, it's that specific one. So I knew you were going to say that. So for those listeners not familiar with the geography of Caution, the town planning of Caution, uh, I'm referring to a Zebra Crossing. The Zebra Crossing is still there. Uh, it used to have Caution Library on one side of the road and then uh, Chaplin's, the news agent, on the other side of the road. So the library has now uh, changed locations, but the, there is still a shop on the other side of the road. And I was in town with my dad one sunny afternoon and my granddad was on the other side of the road. And my dad asked me to go over the road and ask my granddad if he wanted a lift back to his house. Now, I had obviously done some road safety uh, bits and pieces with my parents and at primary school. But I must have been slightly still unaware of how zebra crossings worked because I ran down the road to the zebra crossing and then just went straight on to the zebra crossing without stopping and looking. In in my child brain, I, I must have thought that uh, that was the pedestrian's right and the cars were always on the lookout for, for people who were just going to dart out. And I remember clearly it was a brown B registration Mark II Cavalier that had to do an emergency stop when I ran out onto that zebra crossing and the tyres screeching and everything. Uh, and uh, and yeah, that that was my that was my near death experience running out onto a zebra crossing uh, in about 1994 or five, I think. I don't remember anything yeah. coming of it. I must have had a little bit of a dressing down. It must have been witnessed by both my dad and my granddad. I'm sure my dad probably doesn't remember. You know, if that Cavalier driver, his reactions had been uh, a millisecond slower, I might not be here talking to you now. So I want to I want to thank them. Whoever was driving that car, thank you very much for being vigilant and. And apologies for giving you a heart attack, which I'm you probably still talk about, I would imagine. Um, so so that I'm glad that's off my chest. What a way to go. Smeared across the windscreen of a B plate brown cavalier. 
it's not what you want in your obituary, is it? I'm amazed that the brakes of a B-plate Cavalier second gen were were good enough for that. But mm. there you go. It's probably going so slowly to start with that it was no no problem for it to stop. Maybe it had recently had an MOT, had some work done. You know, those those components were on point. Saved my life. Oh, thank 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 goodness they did. Otherwise, I'd be sat here doing this pod on my own. So I should also give a retrospective thanks to the good people at the Cyril H. Thomas Chippenham uh, Vauxhall dealership. Again, sadly, no longer with us. It's now a retirement home. What if the driver of the Cavalier is now in the retirement home that is on the land that was formerly yeah. the Vauxhall dealership? This is going way deep. This is going very deep indeed. It would certainly square the circle, wouldn't it? Which is a phrase I keep using on this pod, mm. even though I don't think it's right. <laughs> but there you go. I have to go around there and ask. I think you should, yeah. Yeah, okay, I'll report back on that. So for tonight's episode, we are definitely not piggybacking on the success of a recent Netflix smash hit documentary and talking about the impact of David and Victoria Beckham in the 90s. And who better to help us do that than a returning legend of the pod? Her previous episode on fashion of the 90s was one of our, our biggest ever listens, I think, wasn't it, Alex? In terms of it was in terms of listener stats. So it was, so, it was an all timer. It is. So we're hoping for a really big boost in the numbers as we welcome back to the podcast. Kate Pro, Kate, how's it going? Hi, thank you both for having me. That's exciting. I didn't know that. Don't don't let it go to your head. Until we, <laughs> not until we've done this record, at least. Oh, it's too late, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, before we get into uh, the Beckhams in the 90s, we do actually have a little bit of business to clear up with Kate, uh, don't we, Alex? We need to, to cover something with her first. We do, yeah. Kate's pointed something out to me, which I've actually heard in other places, but uh, it's to do with theme tunes from big 90s TV dramas. Uh, What is it, Kate? What's the observation? Well, I'm glad it's not just me, but I have a problem (laughs) that when I try and recall the Bill theme tune, I actually end up singing Casualty quite often. (laughs) When I say quite often, it's every time. So I get them confused. She's trying to do it all the time, though. Stu. I mean, every time I see her, she walks in, walks down the street. You can hear her coming. She's just trying to hum the. Uh, I see. The I see. It's true. Well, this is the mark of a true '90s head. You know, if if you are walking around and that is the tune that you're humming, then yeah. uh, then those are your credentials right on the line there. That's that's something to be to be applauded, I think. But it's true. It's a challenge to our listeners now. Try and hum the Bill theme tune in your head, and I, at least fifty percent of you will end up just going straight into casualty, or vice versa. I argue it will be more than 50%. Okay, so enough about uh, 90s theme tunes. We are, of course, here to talk about the Beckhams. We had better address the success of the documentary series, first of all. Um, Has everybody seen it? Did everybody enjoy it? I I certainly did. Finished it last week and, uh, well, obviously really enjoyed the the football content. It was nice to see a personal hero of mine, Mark Bosnich, get a couple of appearances in the background. That was my personal highlight. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I only finished watching it this morning, actually. And I, for some reason, I wasn't going to watch it. I kind of just thought I was just another Netflix documentary about something from the recent past. And then I started watching it. And yeah, it was really good. And by the end, I found it quite affecting. I was sort of getting that third person nostalgia, which I don't know if that's a thing or just something I've made up, but sort of nostalgia for someone else's life. When, you know, by the time it gets to the end and Beckham is retired and he's at home and he's teaching his well now grown up son how to take free kicks and you think back to like the start of it when he's a kid yeah I was getting some yeah real third-hand nostalgia so I really liked it um what about you Kate? Oh I loved it I agree with you about the nostalgia it was lovely one of the highlights for me was Roy Keane eating a custard cream (laughs) 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 did you spot that it was just so normal so casual um, it was great to see all the 90s references and yeah it was very nostalgic and I just think Victoria and David are a really lovely couple mm-hmm. um, and I loved David Beckham in a beekeeping outfit. Also when Roy Keane's eating the custard cream I think he's having a pop at Beckham for buying a gold pen possibly the best five seconds of the entire documentary I think. Yeah I, I think my favourite bit was when um, Victoria's trying to convince us that she had a working class upbringing and David pokes his head around the door and says what car did your parents drive? That's, I think that's a really funny bit. That was such a good moment. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so that's the documentary covered. We, of course, are going to focus on the Beckhams in the 90s. And we're going to be looking at three main aspects, which are the fashion, the football and the music. Before we go into that, though, what were our 
personal relationships with the Beckhams at the time. Kate, I'm presuming a big Spice Girls fan. Yes, absolutely huge Spice Girls fan. Um, so it was really exciting when David and Victoria were kind of getting together and there's all the hype around their relationship. Lots of excitement about the engagement and the romance. And my dad is also a Man United fan. So David Beckham was huge in our household. Um, and I was really into football at that time. I'm not so much now. So um, I loved seeing all the nostalgic clips of him playing for Man U. Great stuff. Well, I am an Aston Villa supporter, as has been well documented uh, on the podcast. I'd just like to mention that David Beckham uh, played and scored in the famous You Can't Bring Anything With Kids match at the start of the 95-96 season, which, of course, was Aston Villa beating Man United 3-1 at home uh, on the opening day of the season, a, a game that lives long in the memory of all Villa fans. But even I had a poster of David Beckham on my bedroom wall, on the back of the bedroom door. It was the A1 size poster that came free in uh, Big Shots magazine, which I believe has also been covered on the pod before. And uh, I remember very vividly a girl in my class called Alison Fleming being very jealous that I had that poster because she was a huge Beckham fan. When I told her that I had a big poster of him, she was very, uh, very jealous of that. So I'm um, sorry, Alison, but I am finished with it now. If, if, I, if I ever find the poster again, I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll send it on to you wherever you are. So yes, a big presence even in even in my non-Manchester United following life. How about you, Alex? Well, I hated Man United so much, and unfortunately Beckham sort of fell into that kind of. I mean, I never hated him as a an individual, but I hated anyone who played for Man United. So that wasn't ideal. But then every time he played for England, you know, it was fine, and I liked him. So that is the way of football support really and I was a big um, Spice Girls fan as well I had both their first album well their first and their second album taped from a CD that I'd hired from Corsham Library I think we've covered this on the pod before apologies Corsham Library as you've just said it's no longer there I don't know if I contributed to that with my legal taping but I did have both those albums and I was a big fan and I think Victoria was maybe my favorite of the Spice Girls especially when um in the early days. Not anymore, but in the early days, I think Victoria's my number one. Did you sneak in while the staff were distracted by me nearly getting splattered onto the uh, pavement? <laughs> I came running up to the library and said, quick, there's a kid over there just been run over by a B-plate cavalier. <laughs> quick, go over there. And then, yeah, I just I snuck it out, yeah. Victoria is really underrated, I think, as a Spice Girl. Um, she's really underrated, but she's so funny. But he's universally loved, I think. So I'm not surprised, Stu, that you had his poster on your bedroom wall. Well, yes, and I also am an avowed Sporty Spice fan as well, which probably linked in with, with the football also. So I'm sure I had a poster of Sporty Spice in Liverpool kit alongside the Beckham poster. So it was a real menagerie in my uh, bedroom <laughs> circa 1996. Probably not as much Aston Villa content as you would imagine. But um, yeah, I was definitely more of a, of a Sporty uh, than a Posh fan. I think Sporty's become my favourite over the years. And I, I recognise now that she was the best singer. So I like that. So we all enjoyed the documentary, looking back at the archive footage and watching the Beckhams go through the 1990s, obviously into the 2000s and beyond. One of the aspects we all really enjoyed was the fashion, the different looks that were going on at the time. The first fashion reference I thought of was it was actually David and his family outside the Man United club in their joggers and tees. Um, and I think they were wearing Reebok classics. But then there were all the pictures of the of the football managers in their terrible ties. I just feel like in the 90s, that, that's such a look, isn't it? Football manager look was strong. You don't get that so much on the touchline anymore. It's all slim no. fitting suits and sports gear now. You don't get any baggy suits or cufflinks or anything like that. It's, yeah, it's a shame. It is. It's changed a lot. And actually, Rio Ferdinand talks about that in the show, doesn't he? That he was jealous of David always looking good. And he felt like David had help with his suits, whereas they all looked rubbish and they were baggy and awful. The, the terrible football manager look was quite strong. Yeah, I think everyone was just so compliment, uh, complimentary about David, weren't they, throughout, and how good-looking he is. I wondered if perhaps David paved the way for celebrity endorsement as that first footballer to kind of sell his soul to advertisement and things with the Brill Cream ad, for example. And But it was actually just really nice to see him spending the dough he was making in doing that and just loving his success. It was great. It was a it was a Porsche 911, I believe, was the car that he sort of splashed out on 
for the documentary, not for the documentary, but in the documentary. So yeah, he, he was definitely enjoying that aspect of it, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. But he was living, he seemed to be living with his parents for a while after playing for United for the first time. I, it's hard to tell because I think, so as he moved up to Manchester, didn't he? he moved away from them. And he must have been so young actually when he did that. Because he was saying how he was homesick and stuff. And I was thinking, well, I'm not, not surprised because you're about 16. Yeah, that struck me throughout, actually, how young he was at the kind of peak of his career. He kind of, I didn't realise at the time, it was only watching it back with that nostalgic view, that um, I realised just how young he was when he kind of shot to fame. But I think your point about the endorsement, I wouldn't be surprised if he was one of the first, definitely, definitely one of the first to have such a big part of his career devoted to advertising and modeling and stuff like that and like you say the the style was so sort of rough and ready back then he sort of pioneered thinking about what you were wearing you know other than just the fa cup suit once a year or and stuff like that he was actually always thinking about how he looked look at it now look at football now like it's every football player pretty much is is very conscious of what they're wearing and what their hair looks like and endorsements so yeah, I think he probably was a pioneer in that respect. Did anyone notice the misplaced apostrophe on his Predators when he gets his first boot deal and they've got Bex written on the tongue, but there's a there's an apostrophe in between the K and the S? <laughs> I didn't see that. No. Oh, brilliant. absolutely made me wretch. I can't stand that sort of thing. <laughs> absolutely terrible. Also, uh, the Porsche that you mentioned. Uh, yes, yeah. I have looked it up. It's still on the road and it's only got about 30,000 miles on the clock. So they're really looking after it, which is great to see. Oh, wow. Well, that's really good research, Stuart. (laughs) Well, as the podcast's uh, registration plate correspondent, I thought I had to do my due diligence on that front. (laughs) I feel we have to mention the sarong, which is possibly the most famous Beckham fashion incident of the entire decade. And it was something that was I remember it being on the front page of the newspaper at the time. Um, and and for somebody to be on the front page for wearing something, obviously just went to show how how famous he was and how much of a story it was. Um, what did you think of that, Kate? The, the sarong incident. It's my next highlighted bit of notage. Um, <laughs> yeah, the sarong moment. It was huge, wasn't it? All over the front pages, as you said, and really daring at the time, I think. And I think that's what he did well. He was always pushing boundaries with his looks and kind of trying out new looks and different things and then everybody wanted to copy him so he definitely has that legacy status but I think um, what I wrote down I thought was really cute was he had his confidence at the time growing from Victoria's love so I thought that was so cute. With the sarong Kate do you think it's an early example of playing with because I know you say it's very brave and I totally agree with that do you think it was an example of playing with gender norms at all? Because I know, I guess the sarong is a gender neutral item of clothing in theory, but it was a lot of stuff about Bex is wearing a dress and all this sort of nonsense. Do you think that was an intentional bit of yeah playing with gender norms and challenging them? Or do you think it was just, this is a big statement, there'll be some publicity, but what the hell, you know, I'm into style and it'll get some photos in the in the press it's a good question I don't know really he doesn't seem that contrived to me because a lot of what he said throughout the documentary was you know I never did it for that reason or I wasn't interested in the media attention I would question whether it was that thought about (laughs) no disrespect to him I don't know if he would have given it that much thought at all yeah he just liked it and wore it and it just created an absolute shitstorm in the media. Um, I don't know. It's difficult. I I wonder if, I think Victoria was definitely more conscious of what was going to be in the papers the next day and stuff. Not because she wanted loads of coverage, but wasn't it her idea to wear this wrong? Is that what they said in the doc? That she was like, I'll just try this on. And he was like, okay. And they did. And then it all happened. But maybe I've got that wrong. Yeah, I think you're right, though, about how uncontrived it all was for him and how he, I don't think he was trying to attract attention. He doesn't seem like that sort of person now, and I don't think he did then. So I think, yeah, I I think you're right, and it was more just, I'll just put this on. What the hell? Yeah, but I think you're right about Victoria, and she was in a different industry, wasn't she? So for her, and they kept making reference to that throughout the documentary, that 
her lifestyle was very different for his and it kept crossing over, didn't it? Um, and some of the football managers didn't like that, for example. And it is interesting that she has gone on to be, you know, a huge, hugely successful fashion designer in her own right, um, with a massive fashion house and beauty brand. I wonder, I wonder if she was always kind of thinking ahead, who knows? It's true, it's true you wear a sarong every now and again, don't you? Every now and again, it's, it's purely a comfort choice. Uh, when, when the when the moo is not available, I'll slip into a sarong, absolutely. <laughs> I don't feel we can leave the fashion section of the discussion behind without a look at some of Victoria's looks as well. Great to see some of the classic Spice Girls looks displayed in the show. But she really didn't wear a lot other than a little black dress during that early period of the band, did she, really, to, to go in with the nickname? I agree. And I think she was very slick. Um, lots of black you know big diamond cross black fur she was very kind of sleek I would say something I've written down is about her French tipped nails as well her acrylic nails they were very 90s I just don't think we can not mention the wedding and the wedding outfits as well <laughs> yeah yeah well I remember the thrones but I'd, I'd forgotten completely that they were they were they were bedecked in in vibrant purple I had forgotten all about that mm. yeah absolutely and... horrific weren't they terrible <laughs> And Brooklyn's cowboy hat. And Victoria had these leg straps that went all kind of all the way up to her knee. So they couldn't have been comfortable mm-hmm. either to wear. Um, but yeah, they were quite statement pieces, weren't they? Can I just ask a question about the, the nails that you just mentioned there, Kate? So I remember during the second half of the decade, was there a fashion for nail piercing? Or have I got that completely wrong? Did people wear like earrings that were meant to go in your ears, but but through your neck, through their nails. Did that actually happen? Yes, Stu, I'd forgotten about this. Nicely remembered. I don't know if that was the 90s or the noughties. Well, there's there's one, the most iconic example of that that I can think of is Shola Amma. I think on the front cover of her album, she has that. I think that's the only time I've ever seen it, though. But yeah. I guess that would have been the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine it'd be very better. practical. No, but um, what a trend. Yeah, it's a trend we perhaps have just forgotten and left behind. Another example of something that is coming back, though, isn't it? The French tip. I heard recently that it's yeah, it's making a comeback like everything from the 90s is. I think the French tip quite often pops its head back up into fashion and then goes away again. And Or there's slight variations of it, definitely. One other fashion mention, I would say, is Beckham's shaved head. Everybody copied that. Everybody wanted to look like that, all the guys I knew, um, and wearing diamond earrings as well. It's funny, isn't it, how big a thing that was when he did it? And it was funny in the documentary how it showed that kid at school, it must have been primary school age, who was, had shaved his head because against, I think, his parents' wishes because he just wanted to have that look. But it's like, it's shaving your head, it's such a basic thing. But it was, yeah, it was sort of revolutionary. It's been covered on on other podcasts before, but we have to mention the kid who shaved his head to look like Sven Jorn Eriksson. Have you guys <laughs> seen this? That. Remember this? Um, yeah, yeah. Look it up. It's it's absolutely brilliant. It's around the time of the 2002 World Cup, so obviously we really can't discuss it here. But there was, a, I'm sure, there was a primary school age uh, kid who who had his head sort of hair shaved in uh, and left the ring around the outside to to go for a Sven look um, definitely have a look at that if you can um, and also I suppose before the shaved head there was of course the Beckham curtains which mm-hmm. were iconic in their own right all of his hairstyles have been pretty iconic like the the mohawk they had for a bit I know that was after the 90s but yeah another thing I want to add before we move on from fashion is the tattoos because I think this has been pointed out to me by my housemate and friend Aaron, which is that tattoos on footballers, I don't think were a thing until Beckham. And he really pioneered that look. And now it's rarer to see a footballer who doesn't have tattoos than it is to see one who does have tattoos. Because at this time, when Beckham was like coming onto the stage, it was like tattoos were something that you would have if you were a rock star or a badass, but not sport. Like sport and alternative music fashions were kind of the opposite end of the same spectrum so when Beckham came along and had you know the giant thing on his back and gradually got more and more that was like a real change but I think yeah really pioneered that and made it completely normal now. Before David Beckham 
if a footballer had a tattoo, it just meant that they were really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so Vinnie Jones, Stuart Pearce, David Hopkin, I think the Crystal Palace and, and Leeds midfielder had a forearm tattoo. That really marked them out as being a hard bastard. <laughs> yeah. And David Beckham changed all that. I've got two tattoos and I'm the sense, most sensitive person I know. I didn't know you had tattoos. Oh, yeah, mate. I mean, You know you got the podcast one, which you got when he did the first episode. That's right, yes, yes. It was uh, mandated by, by the board of directors. Yeah. Oh, I'll show you them sometime, mate, next, if you like, okay. next time we get together. Yeah, no problem. We've, we've got to be able to make some content out of that, but we'll come back to it. Shall we move on to football then? This is a topic, obviously, me and Stu have spent way too much time talking about on the pod, <laughs> but we cannot not talk about it in this episode. What were, yeah, what stands out for you, Stu, with the, with the football? Well, I've already mentioned uh, that he scored a goal in, in one of Aston Villa's most famous Premier League victories, but it has to be the Wimbledon halfway line goal that announced him to the world at large. And Beckham saw Sullivan off his line. Also, I love Beckham in the number 10 shirt. I know he's most famous for, for being a number seven. Um, but before in that season, when he broke into the team and before Eric Cantona retired, he wore the number 10 shirt. And I love that. I love that shirt. Also, not really spoken about enough is the fact that he had a short loan spell with Preston North End after he had made yeah. a few appearances for uh, the Man United first team, uh, during which time he scored direct from a corner kick. Obviously, we need to talk about uh, the Argentina game in, in the 98 World Cup, which is which is really the game that catapulted in maybe to world recognition for all the wrong reasons. Does anybody have any personal recollections of that night? Because I can remember it very clearly indeed. I have a shocking memory, but actually when I was watching the footage back, oh, it was just awful to watch. It was so mm -hmm. sad. I felt so bad for him. I really did. Well, this was the part of the documentary that I really wasn't looking forward to I mean it, the first episode ends when it's just happened and he's just been sent off and then I knew that when when we were going to watch the second episode we would have to go through uh, the public enemy number one period it took me back to being in my parents front room at nine years old watching that match being allowed to stay up especially to watch it nobody in our front room that night thought for a second that England couldn't win because David Beckham had been sent off. By what was required, and there was that challenge on Beckham, and Beckham, now whether Beckham accidentally smacked into the defender, Simeone, the midfielder, I don't know, but Beckham's holding his head. I think a yellow card is going to be brandished here somewhere, and it might be to David Beckham. I'll now, Shearer's telling Badastuta not to get involved. The two captains there, well, Brian, it could be a red card. That's what that's what Alan Shearer is worried about. What for Beckham? Yes, because he retaliated. And it's a yellow card. Wait a minute, he's taking another card out for Beckham. It's a red card for David Beckham. Oh no! So Beckham is out of the game. I can't remember anybody thinking that at all. I remember Sol Campbell scoring the goal that that was disallowed and would have would have won the game in extra time. I remember dancing around the front room with my dad um, when that goal went in before, sadly realising that it had been chalked off. What we are talking about, in effect, is a child's game. And I cannot believe that people took it so seriously and said and did the things that they did. The thing that I thought about most was, in the aftermath of that, when he goes on and plays at English grounds the following season, and he gets booed everywhere he goes, and there are people... Obviously, when he's going to take a corner kick, he's got to get right close in with the fans. And there are some shots where he goes in to take a corner kick and there are fans clearly in the background saying all sorts of things and pointing and shouting and swearing. And the only thing I could think of was 
if those people who are in that shot are watching this documentary now, what do they think of themselves? What do they think they were doing at that time? I'm not sure I could live with it. Yeah, it's hard to put yourself in those shoes, isn't it? Both his shoes and those people doing it, because it's it's so beyond anything I would ever do. And I hope, yeah, I hope they do see it and question their behaviour. And hopefully they, they, they have before this, you know, in between that date and now. But I mean, when they show that footage of the, the pub landlord who's had the the effigy hanging outside the pub from a noose and he's just, what does he say? Something like, oh, it's just a joke. That whole section, I was just so angry, so angry at those fans and the media and the way people were saying like, oh, he's let his country down or let let me down, he's let the country down. And like you say, it's just, it's a sport for Christ's sake, get a grip. It's, it's, I mean, it, it still happens now, doesn't it, really? So mm. we can't say this was just something that was confined to the 90s. We haven't grown out of it as a as a society, and it's, it is embarrassing. It really is. It is embarrassing. The effigy, like, he was just hounded, wasn't he? And it was so upsetting to watch. And he obviously carries a lot of personal regret from the decision that he made to retaliate at that moment. So young to shoulder that as well. Yeah, I, just such restraint as well. Like, if I was having that thrown at me, I wouldn't be able to... Because he was, like you said, Kate, he was he still feels guilty for making that mistake and he still regrets it. If I was him, I'd be like... I'd be angry at the other people, the people who were shouting at me, like the, the tabloids and the, the public. I wouldn't be saying, oh, I'm sorry. So, so fair play to him for just, mm-hmm. yeah, keeping a lid on it and, and remaining so sort of humble in the face of it, really. I actually don't remember how I felt. Like, I'm talking as though I was completely guilt-free and, like, I was not involved in any of this hatred of him. But I honestly can't remember how I felt. He played for Man United, so I didn't like him for that. But I don't know. Maybe I was going into school the next day saying, oh, he's let his country down and, you know, building a Pepe Maché effigy that I was going to hang outside the the school window. Maybe maybe I was. But from what I remember, yeah, I, I, I wasn't. There obviously is a redemption arc, though, that comes with scoring the goal that qualifies England for the for the 2002 World Cup. I remember being at a match at Chippenham Town that afternoon with that match being played uh, at the same time. And as everybody was filing out of the ground at full time uh, in Chippenham, the Tannoy announcer came over in the ground and announced that, that David Beckham had scored and that England were going to the World Cup. And there was fevered celebration at Harden Newish Park. And that really was when the rehabilitation was complete in the eyes of the public, although it really didn't need to be that way anyway, as we've discussed. But he played played Greece on his own that afternoon. then scores the penalty against Argentina in the group stage uh, of the 2002 World Cup. Obviously, the World Cup doesn't end particularly well for England, as they never do. But the redemption arc was complete at that point. And one other thing about 98 I want to quickly talk about is how different Glenn Hoddle was then to Gareth Southgate now and the way he treats the England players very much under his wing. He looks after them. He speaks for them sometimes when they can't speak for themselves. And he's like a father figure, isn't he, to them? Whereas Glenn Hoddle was made it very clear that he didn't like Beckham, threw him under the bus, didn't support him in any way. And I just thought how lucky we are to have someone like Southgate now. agree. I love Gareth Southgate. He's a legend. (laughs) I'm glad that uh, Gareth Southgate didn't take his lead from one of his Aston Villa managers, a chap called John Gregory, uh, Alex, who you'll no doubt recall who had a couple of famous player treatment issues, one of which was saying uh, famously of Dwight York when a a bid came in from Manchester United and Dwight York confirmed that he wanted to go. uh, He said, uh, if I'd had a gun, I'd have shot him. And then uh, also when Stan Collymore admitted that he was having mental health problems, which was something that footballers didn't do in the mid to late 90s, uh, John Gregory said, 
uh, on his wages, I can't see why he would be depressed. I'm very glad that uh, Gareth Southgate learned from that experience in a positive way rather than a negative one. Let's just put it that way. So now that we've covered the footballing aspect, we should also look at the music. Um, so I had a genuine cassette copy of the Spice Girls' first album, Alex. I didn't abuse our local library system in order to get hold of the music. My first exposure to the Spice Girls was a clip of them performing live in Japan, which was broadcast on Top of the Pops. And uh, I saw Sporty Spice in her Liverpool kit, the 96-97 the, the Carlsberg-sponsored Liverpool kit. I'd never seen anybody wearing football kit on top of the pots before apart from Manchester United and their awful records of the decade and I, I had no idea that those two worlds could collide in such an exciting way and from then on uh, I was an avowed Spice Girls fan. I never got around to seeing Spice World the movie though. It seems to me now to have been a very very quick decision to put them in a movie and and really cash in on them at the peak of their fame. Have, have either of you ever seen it? Well, I have a copy, Stu. I will lend it to you and you can watch it. Oh, superb. We'll Thank you very much. Together. <laughs> Is it on VHS? No, sadly not. DVD. Oh, that's a shame. OK, I could have got could have got the VCR out of the loft and given it another spin. But but no, I'd be more than happy to have a Spice World movie night at some point. Is Stephen Fry in it? I'm terrible with names. It is Stephen Fry, Alex, isn't it? I've never seen it. I'm not sure. <laughs> You've not seen it? No, I, I've been waiting, waiting for us to do an episode on it. Maybe we, we could do. Uh... That's it. I'm coming to Bristol. We're doing this. <laughs> Kate, what were your experiences of uh, the Spice Girls? How did you first come across them, and what did they mean to you? I loved the Spice Girls. I still love the Spice Girls. I saw them recently in Bristol with friends when they toured. The iconic outfits that they wore. Even Stu remembers the outfits that they wore. They just I even think me they boundaries. Even. <laughs> <laughs> they broke boundaries at the time the girl power vibes celebrating individuality they're funny they're just great aren't they but am i right in thinking that victoria hasn't been involved in the last reunion so she's not she's not fully committed to the mm. to the sg is she she's not she's not really and um, fair enough you know they celebrate individuality so victoria's gone her own way and i hope they all support her shall we say a few words and I don't think there's much more than a few words to say about Victoria's solo career well the only thing I can really remember about that is that she did a record with Dane Bowers from another level yes it was a terrible um, terrible song yeah this <laughs> I mean technically this was in 2000 so it's not the 90s but I think we're allowing ourselves to break a little bit into the 2000s because the documentary obviously goes into deep into the 2000s but it was, um, yeah, so Victoria was part of the infamous posh versus posher race to number one in the UK charts. She was with Dane Bowers doing, and the True Steppers, I should give the True Steppers their, their due. They had a song called Out of Your Mind, which, as you said, was terrible. Uh, a, a, a strong example of auto-tune. I think that auto-tune effect that obviously Cher had used so, mm-hmm. so well, these guys not using it quite as well, I feel a lot more necessary for for Dane Bowers and Victoria Beckham. Uh, and they went up against Spiller featuring Sophie ellis Bexter with Groove Jet, which is a tune. Everyone knows that's a tune. There's no denying which came out there as, as the best song. And I believe it did actually get to number one, Groove Jet, rather than Victoria. For her second single, she went head-to-head with Kylie Minogue for Can't Get You Out of My Head. Bad luck there cool. again on the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ended up actually only getting eighth, I think, in the top ten anyway. So she didn't even come second. But not not great songs to go head to head with when you're mm. trying to forge a, a solo career. This tune's yeah. going to punish you. Yes. <laughs> yes, it did. And it still does. Yes, she wasn't off to a flying start, was she, with her music career? She's done much better in other ways. She went down the correct path, it would appear, in, in terms of fashion versus music. I, I thought it was quite notable that there was only one, I think, clip of her doing any singing, apart from maybe some clips from the Spice Girls together. There was one really small clip in the documentary of her singing in the studio, in the sound booth. And I, I kind of thought, is that because Victoria's not keen to go into that too much? Um, I wouldn't be surprised because she's obviously more for fashion now, but it was, um, yeah, it was notable for me. I'd like to finish, if I could, with a story which is relevant. It is from 2017, so I hope you can forgive me for bringing this up. But I couldn't let this episode pass 
without mentioning this, McDonald's drive through staff in Chippenham got the surprise of their life when they opened their window to find the former England football captain, David Beckham, staring back at them. The footballer, who was accompanied by his son, Brooklyn, and an entourage of Black Land Rovers, made the pit stop in town on Friday afternoon during their journey to Glastonbury, much to the delight of those waiting for their food. Shift manager Philip Moulton, who was in my year at school, maybe the year above me, who served David through the window, was left stunned by the encounter. Uh, this prompted a flurry of activity online, with the shift manager revealing that the former international ordered a Big Mac meal and two cheeseburgers. So there you go, David Beckham, no stranger to Wiltshire, no stranger to Chippenham, and he likes a Big Mac as well. What a guy. What a guy. I love the, the way they describe that, that um, he opened the window and who sta- who was that staring back but David Beckham? It makes it sound like David Beckham was just sort of staring blankly out of his car at the, at the <laughs> window. David Beckham is a friend of Wiltshire, there's no denying it. If you are listening, David, please do get in touch. We'd love to have you on. Uh, same goes to you, Victoria. Of course, either of you would be uh, very welcome guests. We can uh, probably squeeze you in somewhere in the in the new year. So, yeah, get in touch. <laughs> yeah, if the uh, smash hit worldwide Netflix documentary wasn't enough, uh, come and visit our Tim Pot operation and we'll see what we can do to add, add to it. If you're listening, Netflix, and you need uh, anyone to write any of your documentaries about any 90s subjects, then uh, we're, we're all available here. So... Again, get in touch. This is descending into just a terrible sort of I mean, yeah, desperate yeah. call for exposure. But if they are, we should say deal with us directly, not Jeff, because he's gone slightly off the rails recently, hasn't he? And we need yeah. to um, we need to do something about that. So for the moment, we're dealing with all inquiries ourselves. He's yeah. been spending too much time down at the Masonic Lodge. One final question I had, and this is at the risk of turning into some sort of celebrity tittle-tattle podcast, but... I wasn't clear whether David had an affair or not. I, I mean, I thought in the news, like when it ha- around the time that it happened, and I know this is post-90s, but I thought it was agreed that he had had an affair. But in the documentary, it doesn't really say that. They just say it was a tough time for everyone. I think it was very unclear, wasn't it? Because at the time, I believed he did have. But actually, after watching their own documentary, I wasn't sure. Um, I'd like to think he didn't. But regardless, they've obviously come a long way together as a couple, and it's really nice to see. They seemed very happy, and which was lovely at the end. Yeah, yeah, a, a, quite a rare example of a celebrity couple that's really stood the test of time. So that was that was definitely nice to see. Seemed like definitely. a very happy family. Quite a lot of press scrutiny as well, and gotcha. yeah, it must have been difficult. Well, I think that just about wraps up our look back at David and Victoria Beckham in the nineties. Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast again. Uh, Will you come back again soon and and talk to us about another subject? I would love to. Thank you very much for having me back. It's been lovely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Kay. Say hello to the talking tree in Debenhams for us. Thanks once again to Kate Pro for joining us for our look back at David and Victoria Beckham in the 90s. I really enjoyed that. I don't think we did it in as much depth as the documentary did, but it was nice to talk about it all the same. Yeah, I think we were never going to be able to compete with a a deep dive four part Netflix special documentary, but we we certainly did our analysis. I think we did some <laughs> justice. So this is actually preparing us very well for our next episode. We're going to be taking one step closer to nineties pop royalty ourselves. Really, really pleased to announce that on our next episode, we'll be interviewing an artist with a UK number one under their belt. We'll be talking to Peter Lawler from Stiltskin all about his 1990s. I can't wait to speak to somebody who's had a number one hit, who's been on top of the pops, who's done everything there is to do in the world of 90s music. I'm really, really looking forward to this one. I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be a good one, isn't it? I I, I can't wait to have someone who's yeah has been right at the top of, of the UK charts. And I mean, what a story that's going to be. So yeah, I can't wait. Listen out for that one. It's going to be excellent. Uh, Alex, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with us to speak about the Beckhams or anything else they've ever heard on the pod. Get onto our link tree immediately, which can be found in the episode description below. You'll find links to our Instagram and our Twitter and our YouTube, which, as I said earlier in the episode, I have now started adding video clips to. So a little bit of fun if you use YouTube to listen to your podcast. So that's where you can find us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, please do get in touch about anything from the 90s you would like to talk about. We are always really, really happy to hear from you. We want your receipts. We want your litter. We want your packaging. Anything you can find on those subjects, we'd be really, really happy to hear from you about. 
that just about brings us to the end of another episode. Again, really looking forward to speaking to Peter Lawler from Stiltskin next time. Until then, it's goodbye from me. I'm just off to slip into my sarong. And it's goodbye from me. I'm just off to apply some Brill Cream and stick it in the top corner. Cheerio. Bye. And one other thing about 98 I want to quickly talk about is how different Glenn Hoddle was to Gareth Southgate. How different Glenn Hoddle was then to Gareth Southgate. How different, how different Glenn Hoddle was then to Gareth Southgate now.